Hello, Brattleboro, and welcome to this latest episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM LP, your local community radio station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me from Montpelier, representative and regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Good morning, Emily. Olga. Congratulations, you've made it through another week in the legislature. Indeed, I think we're at four weeks now. And how's it feeling? Is the momentum ramping up or are things starting to calm down and become more deliberative? What's your feeling? I actually think it's slowing down a little Okay. Bit and sort of getting into a little more of a groove. There was sort of a pitched for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and and what are some of the the big things you think the legislature um, accomplished this week? Whew. Um, we didn't have very much action on the floor, but I was really excited. My um, committee of conference on S one hundred eight, which is about employee misclassification enforcement, oh, yeah. signed off on their um, on our committee of conference report last night. And so that should be coming to the floor any day now. Fantastic. And so for Miss, just to remind listeners, because this is a big deal, um, misclassification of employees has to do with people being called contractors when perhaps technically they're not. Yeah, and that means that if, you know, we have all these labor laws that we've fought for for more than 100 years, but if someone is not classified as an employee, then they're not protected by any of those labor laws. Right. And so by making sure that um, it's really a way of continuing to protect folks who are working in Vermont. Fantastic. And I believe... Um, did... And we should talk about that more next week or the week after. Perfect. We actually... Yeah. Now, did, um, if I remember correctly, something happened with minimum wage as well this week. Did we do that this week? That was last week, Olga. Sorry. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. I thought something went through sorry. with the Senate. the Senate. Last week, we voted on minimum wage, and then the Senate voted on it this week. I'm sorry. Okay. Yesterday. And it was um, a resounding vote. Great. So now it goes to the governor, and he will either uh, sign it, let it go through without his signature, or veto it. Indeed. Okay. We shall and see. Listen- not have noticed, but there was a deliberate pause in between the family medical leave bill leaving the building and going over the governor's office and the minimum wage bill leaving the building and going to the governor's office. That was a deliberate attempt to keep them separate from each other. Oh, interesting. And why would that be the political thing to do? The governor um, is very good at signing one thing and letting something else go into law or equating two things in order to say no on both of them. But it, it just keeps the issues separate in the public's mind. Smart. Okay. Well, I want to move on to something else that is um, moving through the legislature right now. And it is a joint resolution, meaning it is uh, something that's coming out of both bodies, both the Senate and the House. And it has to do with Vermont's involvement in the eugenics movement in the beginning of the 20th century. And basically what it what it does is um, apologize 
for Vermont's role in the forced sterilization program. In 1931, Vermont passed a law that said you could forcibly uh, sterilize people if they were considered uh, idiots, imbeciles, um, or basically immoral. But what it really did was target uh, a number of people who were poor, people of color, and specifically people of French-Canadian and Abenaki descent. And I think, uh, based on what I've seen, through the program that we know of, Vermont forcibly sterilized uh, over 200 people, um, 253 people, most of them women. So this is um, an acknowledgement that the damage that this program did is irreversible and that the legislature is sorry for their participation um, in this program and in this... um, yeah, I mean, eugenics wasn't just a program. It was a whole belief system about how to make better citizens. And Vermont wasn't the only state to participate in it. Uh, it wasn't. Vermont was actually um, the best at it in the country, um, which is, you know, a terrible claim to fame. But Vermont's organized um, work on eugenics, especially with the Abenaki and the French Canadian populations um, was really the beginning of the social services movement in Vermont. Mm-hmm. See, and I find that in- that fascinating. I do too, um, and it n- wasn't just at the beginning of the 19th century. It really went through the 50s, as far as I understand it. And when you talk to folks in Bellows Falls, there are a number of families in Bellows Falls that still really remember this. Um, Mm -hmm. their grandparents remember it. It's something that people still talk about. It's really what a lot, I've met many people, at least in Wyndham County, say that they know that they have Indian blood, but they have really no um, connection to what that means or to their people. And a lot of it was people's, you know, belief systems and identities going underground so that they'd be protected during this time from social services. And I think that um, what's significant about that to me today is that I think it's created a, um, multi-generational distrust in state systems mm-hmm. even as state systems have evolved far beyond it yeah um i don't want to take emphasis away from the forced sterilization program because to me that was eugenics at its worst but we can't forget that this system went into the school system and it it even talked um you know children were classified under mm-hmm. under this system and and you could be classified as a quote unquote um like mongoloid if your first language was in english which in vermont's case was most people's uh if their first language was in english it was often french um mm-hmm. so we can't forget that all the little tendrils of of this system that went out into our communities. Absolutely, no. How we track kids in schools um, has a really long history. Um, the experience of the French in Vermont and Catholics in Vermont has a really long history um, of oppression. You did say that the, the forced sterilization is sort of the worst of eugenics, and I think it's important to remember that actually, like Hitler adopted genetic eugenics from America um, mm-hmm. specifically. What Done. And so really the worst example of eugenics would be Nazi Germany. But I, you really, we do see like lingers of it everywhere when we think about um, how different ethnic groups are considered worthy or not worthy of certain privileges. Yes. Including how children are raising children. 
Yep. So for in your mind, um, Emily, what role does this formal apology play in this long history? Um, you know, it's something that I've been surprised how few people know about. Um, mm. It's something that I think I just first learned about in a piece of fiction, historical fiction about Vermont. And so that's been... Um, and so I think in addition to the fact that it takes some steps to... Um, healing a long divide with the Abenaki um, and starting to look at what some sort of tribal recognition and sovereignty might be. Mm -hmm. I think it also continues um, something that I think we've done a lot of the last years in the legislature of acknowledging state harm and moving forward. For me, what I, what I feel the um, apology does because the damage that eugenics did um, has been done. But what I feel this apology does is it signals to the people who were hurt and their following descendants who inherit that pain um, that the state government has changed mm -hmm. and that um, the priorities have changed and that um, hopefully something like this will never happen again. Yeah, I hope so. Um, you know, it's, and I appreciate that we're doing that and we've done that. I don't know how many people um, are really following the resolutions of state government. We mm -hmm. have a lot of resolutions every day. Some of them are about sports teams <laughs> and some of them are about, um, you know, deeply meaningful apologies like this one. And so I think we're going to have to look to how um, both the media and legislators communicate what happened to see if we're able to have any community effect from mm -hmm. the apology. So given the, as you mentioned before, eugenics link to social services in Vermont, um, do you feel there is still residue there? Or do you feel social services in Vermont has um, grown beyond this part of its history? I think social services in Vermont is in a completely different position, um, you know, with, I think, social work, schools of social work throughout the country uh, do an extraordinary job of really integrating um, autonomy and integrity and um, positive social change, acknowledgement of past harm into their curriculum. And so I have a lot of, um, and as, sort of an administered bureaucracy has, um, you know, great codes and policies. Um, I think a lot of people who are working in social services in Vermont aren't aware of this legacy, which makes it hard to get past it when we do have Vermonters that still remember it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's sort of the last remaining piece of it is to really um, name and heal and move past which I suppose we're doing with this resolution. And um, has it been voted on yet? Or what's the next step for this resolution? You know, I should have looked into that before we got on the phone, Olga, and I honestly have no idea. Okay. I don't think it has been because when I was on the legislative website, 
last night. It didn't look like it had been, but you know, sometimes things happen so fast in the, in the legislature. And, yeah. Sometimes resolutions come to the floor and we vote on them, but I think occasionally they get sent to a committee for longer consideration. And my guess is that something like this would spend some time in a committee. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's keep this on our radar. Um, and, and when it comes to a vote, let's, let's make sure we talk about it again. You know, the last thing I would add about the legacy, um, which is not necessarily the specific legacy of eugenics, but just that all of our systems, um, and institutions are, you know, tend to be biased around race and class. Mm -hmm. That is the world that we live in. And so in some ways that is, you know, Eugenics was just part of that legacy, and you know we're living in a different part of that legacy right now. And I think so many of us are working really, really hard to um, name that, train for that, and overcome that. But that's certainly something that's you know as much a part of the legislature as is part of Main Street and a part of any of our state systems. That was that's a good thing to remember because I think sometimes when we talk about. Um, incidents in history or or movements like this the eugenics uh really was a movement in so many ways we we talk about them like they happen in vacuums and they really don't no nothing does actually yeah and so something you know depending on what you what you see in the history books things led up to the eugenics movement and created it but then also things in the eugenics movement created its own demise as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and we, but, but it's the residue I think is always what we have to be the most careful with because that is sometimes the systemic things we don't see. Absolutely. Um, I want to change gears a little bit um, and talk about another bill that is heading through the legislature. And I hope I have the, the right number. I have it down as H215. And it's about creating an office of the child advocate. And we have on the phone with us, um, one of the lead sponsors of this bill, Representative Daniel Noyes uh, from Walcott. Um, and he is a member of the Human Services Committee. Welcome, Dan. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, for joining us. This um This is an interesting bill. Um, It would basically create an independent office that could oversee a number of the programs that deal with children in our state. I'm I'm wondering what um, inspired or kind of launched you to sponsor this bill and to to put it into the the legislative session. Yeah, so um, last year, uh, actually two years ago, we had some legislation in our committee that basically expanded parental rights for foster families. And what that did was allowed um, foster families to allow their foster child to sleep over a friend's house or sign a permission slip without having to get direct permission from a uh, case manager at DCF. And in that process, um, I actually met one of my constituents who I had met kind of on the peripheral before, Nate Farnham, young man, grew up in foster care. I believe he's been to like 20 different foster homes. He's on the Wolcott Fire Department, and um, he came in and and provided some testimony on what it was like to grow up in the foster care system, which I did not. And we developed this great relationship um, about, you know, 
just listen to him and try to understand his world. And uh, I met with some of his colleagues or his peers, his friends, um, who also grew up in foster care and talked to them about their experience. And as this bill progressed, Nate and I, um, you know, connected more. And uh, one of the things he said to me was, do you know what it's like when you're 12 years old and you're trying to advocate on your, for yourself to a DCF worker. And I thought, no one shouldn't have to know what that's like. Mm -hmm. And we subsequently passed that bill. The governor signed it. Nate was there. And when the governor signed it, he gave him his, gave him the pen. And he was just so proud of that. And uh, so we've been talking about creating the Office of the Child Advocate or an ombudsman type program that really helps um, make sure that youth moving through the foster care system transition to adulthood um, successfully. And mm -hmm. what is that like? And how do we want to make sure that we have really positive outcomes with our foster um, our foster care system and with these children? And so other states have this, um, Connecticut, New Hampshire. Um, and uh, I thought, well, let's, um, let's, you know, let's see if this is something that will work here. Mm-hmm. And if I understand it correctly, reading through the bill, this would be an office that would be independent. Um, it would be uh, the, the person, the advocate would be appointed by the governor. And why is that that feeling? It just it felt when I was reading the bill that independent was was really stressed in in this um this legislation, why is having an independent advocate important? And and, and so, let me let me just uh, tweak that question a little bit to clarify. Why not just have it part of um, our like our Department of Children and Families or something like that? Sure, I mean it's a great question. Um, you know, we think about um, we think about, we got two things. Um, word uh you know having accountability um to taxpayers to the public to these foster children uh to foster families um and being able to look at it from uh, outside of the agency we thought was probably the best way to um have this program exist so that they are not working for dcf there's no you know employee employer relationship between the office, between the child advocate and say the commissioner of DCF or the secretary of the agency of human services, um, we thought if it was outside of state government, um, then when something, um, so as they were doing their work, they were working with um, youth in this system that they would be able to uh, access files, um, you know, talk to youth, talk to the uh, foster families, um, and look look at it from outside of state government instead of being um, part of the existing system. Now, I must say that um, this is a bill that is kind of a starting point, you might think of it as. It mm -hmm. could be um, in the office of the administration, which would be in the governor's office. So therefore, it would be inside of state government. Um, you know, that's what the committee process is all about. It's for us to really kind of flesh out these ideas and think about how this would work best um, in Vermont, promoting Vermont values and making sure that, um, you know, these children transition to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And I would add that context 
we're lucky to be doing this now because so many other states have worked on these issues over the last decade. And so we can really learn about best practice Mm -hmm. from what so many other states have done. Power is really um, a delicate and complicated part of the child protection process. And the amount of power that um, child protection workers have and as they should um, to protect children. But I think it gets really complicated for youth and foster families who are engaged in the system um, to understand how the whole system works and how they can navigate it themselves when they are in this very intense, um, very imbalanced relationship with a certain agency. And so I think that's another reason that it's important to sort of have it outside so that people can sort of take a step back and breathe from the intensity of the relation, the one-on-one relationship between a child protection worker and um, the child being protected. And, and this type of system actually exists in state government um, with the long-term care ombudsman. So um, we have someone uh, who is funded through state dollars that is at um, legal aid, and their job is to um, be the and take a look at how older Vermonters in um, nursing homes or in residential care facilities, and to deal with any issues that come up with their care. Um, and that's the long-term care ombudsman. So we have some systems in place that just look at a different population. And so one of the things I was thinking, well, maybe it's built on the same uh, concept as the long-term care ombudsman. It's housed at legal aid. Um, but that doesn't, that's the neat thing about the committee process we have here. I might take an idea that I have, put it out into some draft legislation, which is what this is. And then in our committee, we take testimony from, um, you know, we, we spoke to the long t- uh, we spoke to the Office of the Child Advocate in Connecticut, and we're going to be talking to the one in New Hampshire, and to really think about what other best practices are, and then how do we make that work in this bill? And we can change anything in there um, through the committee process. And once we get to a point where all of us agree that this is this is or a majority of us agree because we vote, but um, we're always striving for all of us um, agreeing and coming to some sort of a, a mutual agreement, um, then we'll vote it out. And then it goes through the, the whole legislative process and then to the Senate. And what has the response been so far in the committee process to this bill? I've been just following it in the, the press since I'm down here in Brattleboro and, and not on the ground in Montpelier. Um, And I've heard some mixed reports um, about um, some members of state government feeling like this is not a necessary addition to the Child Protective Services. And Olga, I would say that um, the conversation didn't start this year when it got picked up in committee. There was... um, you know, some conversations last year and then over the summer or fall, I have no idea when it was, there was a two-day conference um, put on for by Voices for Vermont's Children where most of the members of the Committee of Jurisdiction, the Human Services Committee, was, was there. I was there, um, a number of folks who had been affected by the um, child protection system in various ways spoke, and a number of members 
of the administration um, were there in attendance as well. And so there was really a full day to talk through some of this and mm-hmm. get our minds around it and talk about what worked and what the need was. And that was an incredibly um, productive, friendly time. Mm-hmm. And so I think, um, I guess I would warn us from talking about sort of the official administration response, um, which can often come forward more um, directly and concretely than um, sort of those slower conversations that lead us to come to consensus. And I think the work that we did in the lead up to the session was really some slow, productive conversations where we were getting a lot of buy-in from folks across the administration. And and I, I want this to work not only for the child, which which is really what we're focusing on, but the foster families. And in fact, I want this to work for DCF and state government and to be able to say, um, you know, we're working together to try to solve some of these bigger issues, um, both internal and external. um, And so that um, we can really tell the story of our successes here in Vermont on how um, children have moved through the system and, uh, been successful. And it's not always about, you know, the gotcha or whatever. That's not, we, we don't want this to be used as, as a tool of hate against DCF. We want this to be a way to help these children um, um, move into adulthood, as I was saying. So anyways, it's not, um, we have to, we have to find that balance so that both, um, you know, we have to find a balance so that this works for everybody. One reason um, I think I got really involved in this bill and really excited about this bill is I see, you know, in Wyndham County where we have the highest rate of kids in state's custody, what happens to me as a legislator and what I know happens to all of my other colleagues from Wyndham County is we get regular calls from birth parents, from foster parents, from children, and from folks who are working for DCS saying there's this thing going on and I don't know what to do and I need your help. But because the system um, by necessity has so much privacy connected to it, there's a really like um, hard limit on how helpful we can be. Mm -hmm. And so being able to say to, you know, folks working within the system, folks affected by the system alike, hi, I have a path for you. Let me hold your hand, get you connected with this office and they'll really be able to navigate all the complexity to help you get your issue resolved, which is something that as a legislator I can't do. So we have a um, healthcare ombuds office as well, um, the Office of the Healthcare Advocate. And you know, every week I get a call from someone who is having various problems with health-related issues, whether that's accessing health insurance or accessing care. And I know I can call that office and connect my constituent there, and they will both solve the problem through what seems like magic sometimes. <laughs> um, and they're keeping notes about what they sort of get regular calls about. So the other week I called about something and they're like, you know what, we've gotten like a lot of calls about this in the last six months. I wonder if you want to be part of finding sort of a more systemic solution to this. Yeah. And we've, we've started taking some testimony in the human services committee on this bill. And, and there was some discussion about, you know, what would be the responsibilities of this position. And it's not only looking at, you know, case-by-case basis, but being able to um, have this child advocate serve on um, 
different groups that are trying to solve these bigger system-wide issues. And because they have the internal knowledge and the case knowledge, um, they can bring a perspective to the table that says, just like you were saying, there's, hey, we've been seeing a lot of issues for X, Y, or Z. Let's, let's all band together and try to figure out how to solve this um, so that um, there's more th- raise our success rates and less calls to the child advocate. <laughs> I mean, you almost think it's kind of weird. You're creating a, an agency. You're creating this position that ultimately, mm, you you know, you, they would put themselves out of business because they would be able to be there and make sure the system's working correctly. And then, you know, people don't have problems. But Ideally, that's true for all of our nice? services. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wouldn't that be nice on a whole bunch of different levels? Yeah. <laughs> That is um, a wonder. I'm glad we're talking about systems. Um, I want you, Dan and Emily, to hold there because we need to go to break and hear from some of our underwriters. Um, So stay tuned, listeners. You are listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on 107.7 WBEW in Brattleboro. We shall be back after a word from our underwriters. FM LP, your radio station here in Brattleboro. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I have on the phone with me from Montpelier representative and regular contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily. Hey, Olga. (laughs) And then also I want to welcome back to the show, representative Daniel Noyes, who's from the, a member of the Human Services Committee. Thanks for being with us, Dan. Thanks for having me. So we, if you're just joining us at the top of the hour, we were talking about some legislation that's working through, I think right now it's with the Human Services Committee. And it it would be about creating the Office of the Child Advocate, which would be an independent agency person who would work with children, um, kind of like an ombudsman, as as Dan described at the top of the hour. I just want to frame this before we go back into the conversation about when it comes to the care of children, this is an extremely emotional issue for a lot of people. Um, whether you are parents, whether you are foster parents, whether you are um, in the, you know, one of the service industries uh, working with these families, um, that it is, it is a very, touchy subject and a very heartfelt subject for many people. And I think I even heard it a little bit with uh, Emily and Dan when I asked a question at the top of the hour about some of the feedback that has been happening around this um, this bill. And um, I, I heard some emotion in your voices there. So I'm, I'm curious, Dan, where in the legislative process is this bill? Um, is it because it because I think you said that you had um, started working on it last year, but now it's actually starting to get testimony. Um, I, I put this bill in last year, at the beginning of the biennium, so at the mm-hmm. beginning of the session, um, and it didn't get any. Um, didn't we didn't really talk about it last session, uh, and then our committee. Um, we kind of try to prioritize the bills that are in there. In our committee, we probably have 60, 70 bills, um, maybe more, and you should probably count them. Um, and um, 
so we talked about what bills kind of resonate with the committee in general. And this was one of them that came up and it came up not only last year, but this year. And so uh, our chair decided that this might be something that we should take some initial testimony on. So last week we had our first day of uh, testimony on this. We, um, you know, brought some folks in. I'm sorry, this week. Sometimes these days just get blended together. Uh, um, And, you know, we really started to take that first 30,000-foot view of of what this looks like. So we first thing in the process is we have um, ledge counsel, the lawyers, come in and kind of um, go over what what is in the bill. What does this mean? What does this look like? Kind of um, an overview for the committee get started. And then we brought in uh, Nate, who I was talking about earlier. Nate came in, uh, Amy Grady from the Voices for Vermont Children. We had the person who runs the Connecticut Office of the Child Advocate give us some testimony. And then we had the department, DCF, um, come in and talk about their, what they think about this bill. Um, And then, you know, a little committee discussion. um, And then you know, we move on. We have many bills that we're talking about in committee at any given time. Um, and then we're going to pick it up again next week. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we'll arrange for more witnesses to come in and talk about how they think this bill would work, where they feel that, um, you know, what we should make sure we don't leave out of a final draft, what, you know, what's in there that should come out or what we're missing that should go in. Um, and uh, so we'll listen to both people that do not want this and um, people that think that we need to move forward on this issue. And I think Olga and Dan, part of the, you know, what's going to make this a really difficult issue to take up, which I think probably happens in the Human Services Committee a lot, probably more than in commerce, um, is, as you said, Olga, the feelings that everyone has. And Mm -hmm. so when we're thinking about children or foster parents or birth parents, they're dealing with like the most essential feeling of attachment and um, delayed attachment, disrupted attachment, um, threat of non-attachment, you know, and um, that's like gets to people's most elemental Mm -hmm. selves and senses of safety in the world and fear and love and everything. Um, And so like profoundly emotional issues for people. And then when we think about social workers, they are, you know, have an enormous amount of responsibility mm-hmm. for children's lives and children whose lives are deemed at risk. And so they are operating from a place of tremendous fear um, mm. every day that they do that work. And over the last, say, five years in Vermont, I think there's also um, that fear has escalated both because, you know, as an entire society, fear has just sort of escalated over the last few years, but also because we've had both the death of children in state custody and the death of a social worker. And so the um, tenor of feelings within the Department of Children's families is really significant as well. So everyone is going into this deeply, deeply emotional issue. Right. Simultaneously, um, what we're talking about, like when we get very um, technical about it, is we're talking about creating at least two new positions in state government, maybe three. Mm -hmm. And in a budget that is um, essentially level funded, that might mean having to cut something else. Mm -hmm. And so emotional about every program 
and state government. Absolutely. You know, and that's one thing that, that we have been talking about is, is how do we pay for this? You know, um, what does this look like? Is this the best use of taxpayer dollars to make sure that our systems are working efficiently and that um, everybody is supported? I mean, I, I would hope that we can come up with a way that not only the case managers of TCF feel that this could be something that would help them uh, do their work, but the foster families and obviously the children is where we're trying to focus on feel that, um, you know, we have come up with some sort of a, um, come up with a way to make this work for everybody. Um, it would be my goal, obviously, and we're all trying to figure out that, um, that balance. So, um, yeah, I really, I keep on having of having, you know, youth and families really having a partner to walk through and yeah. system with, and that's really significant. Mm -hmm. Olga, I'm sorry, I noticed that um, as the day grows, the noise in here grows. We're hiding in a funny little corner. Um, <laughs> we could use this building. Um, I had noticed the background in uh, noise as well, but so far we can still hear you guys, which is the important part. I'm curious, Wonderful. and... And I realize that as this bill moves through the legislative process, things may be tweaked with it and it will come out looking different than it than it went into the process looking. Um, and I, I realize a lot can happen with human services between now and, and uh, if and when this bill passes. But I'm curious, we were talking earlier about s systems and systemic needs and, and those sorts of issues. I'm wondering, do either of you have an idea right now about some of the the bigger issues that maybe this advocate might be working through? Um, I think one thing that um, has come up quite a few times is, and why we're thinking that the advocate needs to be outside of DCF is because of the relationships between the court system mm -hmm. and the Department of Children and Families and then children and families. Um, exactly. And so that, um, the complexity there, mm -hmm. I think, is a, one of the sort of bigger issues that would be focused on. Mm -hmm. I think another issue that's come up a lot is um, people's different rights around visitation and kinship care. Um, I think that's something that is really difficult for everyone involved to navigate. Um, uh, Emily, can I stop you quickly? For those who don't know, what is kinship care? Um, I'll go. Uh, so a lot of um, grandparents um, may take custody of their grandchildren. And so it could look like that where, um, you know, whether um, they take full custody or partial custody um, just to be able to, because um, their, their parents aren't maybe... It could be anything from um, looking for help with uh, re recovery or from opioids, or it could be even that they're uh, deployed, um, mm -hmm. you know, with the military. So, you know, children move out of custody of their parents for many reasons, and where they end up, whether in a foster family or with a relative, um, which could be an uncle or an aunt, um, you know, or a grandparent. And okay. so when... Often, when a family um, is taking custody of a child, that means that there's real opportunities for having a less disrupted attachment process. Mm -hmm. And so, clinically, it's often much better for the child. 
it also might mean um, might be challenging because whatever family dynamics led to that child being taken to the state's custody in the first place might still be playing themselves out in that w- broader family of origin. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of a balancing act and um, something that often the children and youth have a lot to say about. Right. And this that's what this, um, hopefully this Office of the Child Advocate would help be uh, a voice for the, the, ch- the child in this, in this yeah. process where, as I was talking about earlier, you know, it's really hard for them to advocate um, for themselves. And, yeah. Thank you. Um, I want to revisit something you said earlier, Dan, and I don't know what your experience with this is, but you had talked about how in the state of Vermont we can help uh, youth who are perhaps moving through the the DCF system or the foster care system, however you want to call it, um, move, transition to adulthood successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, how can the advocate help with something like that? So, uh, you know, one thing that, that happens is um, when you hit 21, um, that's if you have been receiving support services to try to figure out, um, you know, your housing or, um, any uh, services that may be provided, uh, that all ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of age out of the system in there. Um, so planning and thinking about, okay, making sure that this youth um, has a job or is thinking about a job and then where are they going to live and what does that look like? You know, do they have um, an apartment they can rent and just helping them um, transition out of state custody to living on their own and make sure that that successful transition so that they don't, they don't necessarily come back. You know, it's not that we don't have the supports for them to come back if they need that help, but just to be able to have that planning process um, and to have someone to work with. Um, and I'm sh- and I'm sure it's not only uh, internal with their, uh, um, with, state agencies, but having someone that can also help from outside. You know, we know in Wyndham County, we have a um, remarkable number of kids who age out of foster care into homelessness, um, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18, because we have, you know, if youth like um, Dan's constituents move from foster home to foster home to foster home, you know, generally around the age of 16, they have enough of their own agency and sense of agency um, and really like lack of connection to this process that they're going to go out on their own and not want to go to another home. Mm -hmm. And that becomes um, a really difficult place for them to then navigate state services and state supports from. Mm -hmm. Because they're really adults and they don't really have a guardian. And depending on what what trauma they've experienced, if they've experienced trauma, the you know, how do they make sure that they can um, be successful holding a job and being able to budget and rent and you know, all the things that maybe we got help with from our parents. Mm-hmm. So. Um... I, I know we are looking statewide at a level funded budget, but um, 
this sounds like more than that this office needs more than two to three people. Yeah, and we've had some discussion <laughs> about that. I mean, um, I think that, uh, you know, based on we'll – be, we'll be talking quite a bit more about what, what this looks like once we get past um, kind of the why – um, and get into the how, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about based on the population that we have in, uh, in, at DCF, what, what capacity do we, do we need? Um, you know, what will be the roles and responsibilities of this agency? And, and, you know, do we limit it because that we can only have so much funding available? Um, and, you know, we have had some discussion that it, it may be three people, one being the uh, child advocate that would be, um, you know, have a good legal background and then, um, you know, support staff to, to really make it happen. And, you know, this person wouldn't need to be a social worker um, because most of the sort of services that we've described to help youth transition exist in our communities um, through various mm -hmm. state contracts. It's really making sure that all of the pieces are connected and that the people involved in the system know how to connect the pieces because point. it is a, you know, it's a labyrinth that I often, you know, find myself pausing in and I've been, you know, working in sort of DCF connected social services in Vermont for, you know, more than a decade. Yeah, and and you got to remember, it's an advocate, right? Yeah. So this person's job is to help them navigate what's out there, and you know, be their voice uh, in the system. Mm hmm. So, what is the next step for this this bill? It's you're taking testimony right now. Mm hmm. So and we'll continue. We'll continue to take testimony, and if the committee feels that. Um, it's got the support and we're at a place where, um, you know, we can come up with a process, uh, come up with a, a position of, um, then we'll, we'll vote it out and it will go to the, the, the full floor for a vote and debate, um, and then onto the Senate. So I think this is a good point to remind people, uh, because there are so many people invested in the care of children, uh, especially in Wyndham County, uh, Emily and Dan, I think it would be a great place to pause and say, how can someone who maybe can't get to Montpelier can still submit comment or testimony to your committee? Absolutely. Um, so on the legislative webpage, uh, you'll see across the top, there's some bars, house, and then go to the house, committees, human services committee, and you can see our agenda there of what um, kind of the upcoming week, um, and then there's all of our contact information. So, you know, if a listener wanted to provide some, some input or wanted to testify on this, um, they could reach out to our committee assistant, Julie, um, they could send written testimony and reference this bill and say, hey, I read through this or these are my life experiences. And, you know, um, and it's not just, we, we, you know, we want we want both sides. We want to know what people think um, for, against, um, indifferent, you know, um, because that's how we're going to be able to, to make good decisions if we can really think about um, what the communities and what Vermonters uh, want. Mm -hmm. So there's ways to do that. You can also come and visit us. 
You know, you can come into any committee room, uh, you know, and sit right down. You don't even have to knock. Um, and, uh, you know, doors are all open here, although they may be closed, but that's just to keep it quiet. But you can just come right in. So you can provide uh, written testimony, you can send an email, um, uh, or you can come down. Fantastic. Thank you, Dan. Um, we're just about out of time. I want to check in with both of you, though. Is there anything on this um, H215 bill that you wanted to make sure we touched on or you wanted to add? No, I just want to sort of name for a last time that um, we might all agree that this is in the best interest of Vermonters, and yet we still are going to need to hustle to make sure there's a way to get it in the budget and that mm-hmm. something else that isn't in the best interest of Vermonters doesn't get cut. And so that becomes really complicated. Um, and so, you know, there might make sense for me to cut something on commerce in order for human services to add something, but that's not really how it works, <laughs> which is really unfortunate. Because, um, you know, almost everything that's um, in the human services budget is drastically underfunded. Uh, yeah, that's so, true. Um, I think that's, that's a stumbling block that I don't see us solving this year in the grand, you know, the grand mm-hmm. scheme of stumbling blocks. But so, I'm hopeful uh, on this particular initiative. And that's definitely an underlying discussion we have with with all legislation is how do we make this work within the financial constraints mm-hmm. Or, you know, how do we have programs that maybe, um, you know, we should eliminate that aren't really helping anymore? Mm-hmm. Uh, just for clarity, Emily and Dan, um, you know, Emily, you said it might make sense to cut something in commerce, but but that doesn't help human services. Could you just explain to people, like, what structurally is at play there? Um, Generally, each committee um, is asked for the appropriations committee asks each committee for advice about their section of the budget. Um and each committee then fights fiercely to protect their <laughs> section of the budget. So, yes, absolutely, the Appropriations Committee has the right, um, and I would say even the responsibility, to sometimes cut one area of jurisdiction in favor of enlarging another area of jurisdiction, but that um, that's not generally um, up to each committee. To do. Right, right. Like in our committee, I have Department of Health, so um, I'm looking at their budget, and then I will provide feedback um, to our committee on where I think funds are allocated within the Department of Health's budget, and then uh, we'll include that in our letter to appropriations. So though we don't have, we're a policy committee, so we talk about policy um, and systems there, but um, the money gets talked about only in appropriations. Okay. But we all think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for that. I, I think that helps listeners understand a little better what you are all working with. So thank you. Well, we are out of time. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Emily, oh, do you have a drink for us? Oh, this is I, the happy um, hour. It is indeed the happy hour. Um, I've been really, I think maybe in sort of times of high stress, I just turn to... Um, Simple bourbon drinks. Oh. And so uh, I had like a pretty fancy old fashioned, you know, just like good quality bourbon, some ice. That's great. It was great. <laughs> I felt, yeah, I felt much lighter after I drank it. <laughs> How about Dan? Do you have a, a go to? 
a happy hour drink? It can be like alcoholic cheap- or non-alcoholic. So, I like cheap beer. Um, <laughs> Narragansett or PBR, I know. But Dan has <laughs> a scheme for making beer even cheaper in Vermont. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there actually is a uh, some legislation here that um, is, I did not introduce, but um, I signed on to it to bring back Happy Hour. <laughs> I think there's quite a few signatures on it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's one thing that I've always kind of chuckled to myself about this show is we call it the happy hour when actually technically in Vermont, what's the law now? You you can't discount drinks. Yes, that's exactly the law. We used to not be able to have more than one drink at a time, but we're allowed to do that now. Okay. Well, I'm excited today. Later today, I will be interviewing uh, Jason Lively, who is the person in the process of taking over duo in downtown Brattleboro, uh, buying it from, from the current owners. And so I'm going to be asking him since he was the bartender for very, a long time at duo. Um, if he has any new cocktails, he's planning on bringing to the, I can't to the lounge. Hear the news, What's that? I can't wait to hear the news. <laughs> yes. Stay tuned. It will be in the comments next week. Thanks for such a great conversation today. Um, I'm just going to jump right ahead of your question. If any listeners want to get in touch with me, they can find me um, on Emily Kornheiser at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or ekornheiser at Gmail or ekornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. And I am at my office hours in the co-op cafe every Saturday at 11 waiting to hear from all of you thank you emily uh if folks want to reach out to me probably the best way to do it is through the vermontitude facebook page or the vermontitude soundcloud page or of course like emily you can stop me on the street if you happen to see me out and about and as always we broadcast live at 2 p.m on wvew 107.7 in Brattleboro, or you can find this conversation podcasted online at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or with Radio Free America. Dan Noyce, thank you so much for joining us. Emily Kornheiser, thank you so much. And listeners, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you.